Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Charlene Goff, our retail banking correspondent, Daniel Schaefer, our investment banking correspondent, and Sam Fleming, our regulatory correspondent. This week, we'll discuss RBS as the UK part nationalised bank gets embroiled in yet another row about SME lending. Secondly, central banks around the world are contemplating negative interest rates. What does that mean for the banking sector? And finally, JP Morgan, as it reaches an expensive settlement with mortgage regulators in the US and secures a cheap client due at Buckingham Palace. First to that RBS story, Charlene, it has been another turbulent weekend for RBS. A couple of reports out on Monday around the practices within RBS in terms of SME lending, particularly around the recovery of bad debts from SMEs and some fairly scurrilous suggestions, really, from these reports, particularly one of them. Yes, that report came from Lawrence Tomlinson, who runs or owns a care home in Yorkshire and is an advisor to Vince Cable. And he's published some quite explosive allegations this morning on how RBS treated some small businesses who were supposedly distressed, but he's arguing that actually they were quite healthy businesses and the bank actually forced them into distress and forced them into its restructuring business called the Global Restructuring Group deliberately to profit essentially from their demise. Because the allegation is that in some cases, at least this Global Restructuring Group then forced the borrower to sell some of its assets to another company which also happened to be part of the RBS group so it was kind of maximizing on the cheap yeah yeah so really serious stuff here RBS denying it quite strongly saying that they always tried to save businesses not sink them but this is going to run on now Vince Cable has said that he will review this more thoroughly and really try and get to the bottom of these allegations now on the other hand you've got Sir Andrew Large's report so he's the former deputy governor of the Bank of England and he was brought in by RBS to do an independent inquiry of its SME lending. Now, we had a summary of his recommendations back at the beginning of the month. They were pretty uh, critical. They said that the bank rejected a far higher number of small businesses than any other bank, treated them badly in all sorts of different ways. And he did allude to this this GRG issue as well, saying that there was quite a small number of RBS's customers who had been treated very badly. And he didn't really go into a huge amount more detail than that. Now, today, he's come out and said that he can't actually substantiate these claims that we've had from Mr. Tomlinson. As far as he was concerned, only about 10% of customers in the GRG group actually go into insolvency, the rest come out or are sold on. So he's saying, look, there are problems there, how bad they are needs a bit more work. Now, obviously, this whole topic is pretty sensitive, given that RBS is still more than 80% owned by the taxpayer. And it's come under increasing political pressure of late with the new chief executive and so on. 
how seriously should we take these two rival reports? Because one, as you say, the Andrew Ludge report was commissioned by RBS, so you might think that it's not necessarily going to be entirely objective. But the other one was a so-called self-commissioned report, this Tomlinson report. What validity does that one have? Well, I think we're going to have to dig into that a bit more. He's an advisor to Vince Cable. Vince Cable has been the most vocal critic of small business lending by all the banks, but particularly RBS and Lloyd's, its state-backed rival. So he has argued in the past to break up RBS very dramatically, refocus it as a state-run small business lender. He's got some quite contrarian views there, quite strong views there. So... We don't know a huge amount about this guy yet. He's not a big name in the city. He's not associated like Andrew Larges with the Bank of England. So we just have to be careful to take this too seriously at this stage. But there are definitely problems within RBS and they did come out in the other review. The bank has admitted that there are serious problems there. It's looking into them itself. The new chief executive, Ross McEwen, is preparing to update on how this business will be run and changed in a couple of months time early next year so definitely can't say that the problems aren't incredibly serious they are and the bank has a lot to do to clean up its operations well as you say as in many areas ross mcewen's got his hands full with this sme part of the business we should move on to our second topic for the day The Federal Reserve in the US has raised the spectre of negative interest rates, potentially, alluded to the fact that there might be merit in cutting its 0.25% rate at which banks can deposit funds with the Fed. Sam, this always causes a great kerfuffle. Everyone thinks negative interest rates are potentially scary. What's the truth of it? Well, it depends who you are, whether they're scary or not. Certainly, if you're a saver who's been getting almost nothing on your deposits ever since ultra-low monetary policy was introduced back in 2009 in major economies, isn't a particularly appetising prospect to see rates potentially cut even further. Because the thinking on that is that if central banks start charging banks for deposits to be put with them, then obviously the banks would pass that on. They pass it on to their customers. customers. And and that's what we've reported this morning with leading banks saying they could actually start charging customers rather than remunerating for their deposits. I mean, the idea is to add stimulus at a time when most of the monetary tools have been exhausted, especially at a time also when the Fed is considering tapering its asset purchases, some way of countering it. But I suppose the warnings that you're getting from banks about the impact on customers shows that there are unintended consequences, which is why central bankers around the world have really been quite cautious about the idea of negative interest rates. We've seen this in the ECB recently. Mario Draghi has said in November, earliest month, that the ECB is technically ready to go to negative rates. But the Asperson of the ECB said earlier this week that he was certainly very cautious about the idea. If you remember back in February this year, Paul Tucker, when he was at the Bank of England, floated the idea of negative interest rates before the Treasury Committee, and then they seem to really have backed off that idea since. There was one experiment in Denmark last year where they went to negative interest rates. That was partly to keep the currency low because they very closely track the euro and they were being dislodged in their attempts to do that. But really, I think the broad message is that central banks have to be quite careful on this. So should we take this, the idea of a Fed cut, any more seriously than the ECB? I mean, is it any more immediate as a threat? Very difficult to say. I mean, certainly the minutes suggest that plenty of members of the council are considering it and are open to the idea. But I think we're now going to see some ferocious lobbying back from the banking industry, which will try and push back against the idea by highlighting the unintended consequences that could follow. Dan, as Sam was saying there, the banking lobby likely to be 
against this. Do you think that's right? Yeah, it's definitely right. I mean, for the banks, it is a massive problem in that net interest rate margins are already at a record low right now, i.e. the difference between what the banks get for lending out money and what they have to pay for refinancing themselves through deposits or the wholesale markets. So it already is a big problem for banks that the net interest margin is so low. And if interest rates would go into negative territory in the eurozone or in the US, it could prompt banks to actually invest into to more risky assets as a consequence, thus increasing the risks in the financial system once again and increasing the risk for the banks themselves. Isn't that partly what central bankers want, though? It all depends how you define risky, but some of the thinking is presumably that central bankers want commercial banks to be lending into the SME community, yeah. for example, more readily than they are. Definitely, that's what they want. And then again, we're stuck with the perennial argument whether there is enough demand to actually lend to the SME community or whether banks are actually just deliberately withholding lending to the SME community. So you can, again, argue on both sides of the story there. Well, we'll be watching the future pronouncements of both European and US central bankers in the forthcoming weeks pretty closely. I think this could maybe become a reality before we realise. We should move on to our third topic. So, Dan, third topic being JP Morgan. It's the long-running saga of their fines in the US and their settlement, finally, of this $13 billion deal with mortgage regulators. Also, the other interesting news that came out towards the end of last week was that within days of that settlement being struck, they were revealed to have engaged in some very interesting corporate hospitality at Buckingham Palace. Yes, indeed. Jamie Dimon, the chief executive of JP Morgan, basically, as you were saying, within days of the settlement, he hosted a dinner at Buckingham Palace for JP Morgan's external advisors and also a large group of important clients, 100 CEOs from across Europe. And the interesting story, obviously, about it is that Buckingham Palace is for rent for a US investment bank and yeah. its clients, which yeah. we hadn't known before. The details we don't know because the financial transaction hasn't been disclosed. We have different versions of this from different parties involved, some saying that there was no fee paid, others saying that there was a fee paid, but we don't know how much was. One thing probably we can be certain of that it wasn't anywhere near $13 billion. But what are the kind of pros and cons of it being a paid for event either way? Well, I think there are two things here, really. One is there's the general question, if it was being paid for, should Buckingham Palace really do that? Should the home of the Queen be rent out to business? And there's a big question around that in terms of controls and checks on which companies you would rent it out to and the potential for the place being rent out to the wrong companies that might be later embroiled in something that's reflecting a negative light on Buckingham Palace and Prince Andrew, in this case, who hosted the event. Not that we're necessarily and saying that JP Morgan is one of those. Uh, no, no, definitely, no, 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 definitely not. <laughs> Didn't mean to imply that. If they hadn't paid anything for it, again, that raises questions. Why should a bank or another company receive such a preferential treatment of getting the home of the Queen for free to host a client event? Absolutely. Um, we should say that Prince Andrew, his representatives made clear that their reason for engaging this in the first place, regardless of whether it was paid for or not, was because he saw it as a very good way of promoting Britain and British business, and that this was all part of his 
unofficial role, despite him not having any official role as a trade representative for the UK, he's still very interested in those topics. It also shows the important status that JP Morgan enjoys in the city of London. JP Morgan employs thousands of bankers and support staff in Canary Wharf and elsewhere in the country. And there was another dinner in the same week, actually, at JP Morgan, where Boris Johnson was there as well, the mayor of London. And he said, jokingly, but I think it shows the status of JP Morgan, he said, the US gave us JP Morgan, and we gave them Piers Morgan instead. And I think <laughs> we got the better deal. That's what he basically said. <laughs> yes, yeah, certainly, no doubt that JP is pretty well connected. In this case, the dinner was organized initially, at least by David Mayhew, the veteran city dealmaker who retired technically a few years ago, but is still a senior advisor at JP and was able to organize this event on behalf of Jamie Dimon and, as you were saying, Dan, all those clients of the bank. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Charlene, Daniel and Sam for their contributions and thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by John Byrne Murdoch. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.